I'm Dr. Regina Kep. I'm a board-certified clinical psychologist, and I specialize with older adults and families. I created the Psychology of Aging podcast to dispel myths about aging, destigmatize mental health for older adults, and improve access to mental health care. Whether you're an older adult, a family member caring for an older adult, or a professional working with older adults, you're in the right place. And one more thing. If you're a licensed mental health provider like a social worker, psychologist, counselor, therapist, or an aging life care expert or certified care manager looking for continuing education focused on mental health and aging, simply go to mentalhealthandaging.com to learn more about how to earn your CEUs. All right, let's jump into today's episode. Diabetes affects more than 34 million people in the United States with another 87 million at significant risk for type 2 diabetes. With the prevalence of diabetes significantly increasing as we age, with close to 30% of 65 and older Americans living with diabetes, it's critical that mental health providers have the tools they need, that means you, to navigate assessment, diagnosis, and treatment. Depression is two times more likely in people living with diabetes than the general population. So in this podcast today, I interview Dr. Mary DeGroote. She's going to tell us all about depression and diabetes, what you need to know, and how you can help. Let me tell you about Dr. Mary DeGroote. She is an associate professor of medicine and acting director of the Diabetes Translational Research Center at Indiana University. She received her Master of Education degree from Harvard University Graduate School of Education and her doctorate in clinical psychology from the University of Rhode Island. Dr. DeGroote is a clinical health psychologist who has contributed uh, to more than 100 articles and presentations on the psychosocial aspects of type 1 and type 2 diabetes, and her work has been published in the top journals of her field, including the American Psychologist and Diabetes Care. Dr. DeGroote's service to the field of diabetes and psychology is extensive. She was the past president of the Behavioral Diabetes Research Group Exchange, that's also known as BRIDGE, and that is the premier behavioral diabetes organization. From 2017 to 2021, Dr. DeGroote served on the National Board of Directors of the American Diabetes Association. In 2020, she served as the president of healthcare and education for the American Diabetes Association, And she currently serves on the Research Policy Committee of, you guessed it, the American Diabetes Association. Without further ado, let's jump into the interview and get all we can. Let's squeeze all of Dr. DeGroote's wisdom out so that we can help people living with depression and diabetes. All right, let's jump into the interview. Mary DeGroote, thank you so much for contributing your time and sharing your time with us today. This is a really important topic because so many lives are impacted by diabetes and depression. And so you're going to help us understand the link and, and what we as mental health and senior care professionals can, can do um, to help people living with depression and diabetes. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you, Regina, for the opportunity to join you in the pod, the podcast series and uh, for the opportunity to talk with um, all of the listeners about um, this important topic. So it's my pleasure to join you. How did you get interested in diabetes in general? 
Um, that was many years ago. Um, I um, completed my master's degree at uh, Harvard um, Graduate School of Education and was looking uh, to pursue doctoral work in clinical psychology, uh, but realized that I needed some research experience to be competitive. Um, uh, clinical psychology programs have always been competitive. And at that time in the uh, late 80s, early 1990s, um, it was four to five times more difficult to get into clinical psychology programs than it was medical school at that time, believe it or not. Um, and so uh, serendipity intervened, and I started working with Dr. Alan Jacobson, who at that time was the director of the mental health unit at the Joslin Diabetes Center in Boston. And uh, I found my tribe. Um, and uh, thoroughly enjoyed working with him and being mentored by him, uh, working with uh, the incomparable Dr. Barbara Anderson um, and uh, Dr. Bill Polanski, who all of whom were at the Joslin Diabetes Center at that time. And, uh, and that really started my interest and love of this area and, um, and my deep appreciation for everyone who lives with diabetes um, and a desire to uh, do whatever I could to help make that journey a little easier for people as they um, move through it over the course of their lives. Wonderful. So it was a field that found you or you kind of intersect your, your lives intersected. It was. I looked around and, and you know, so admired the people that, that I was surrounded by, um, who, all of whom were incredible leaders uh, in the field and l- was learning so much from them. And then uh, the very first study that I uh, worked with uh, Dr. Jacobson on as, as the research assistant um, was a study of the prevalence of diabetes and depression. And then I started um, in the context of uh, our interview protocol for that study, started listening to the stories of um, our over 200 participants in that study and hearing about their lives and journey, as well as um, some of their burdens with diabetes and depression. And um, I was hooked, just very interested and and very connected um, to all of that. Oh, just to help us um, get a feel for a life living with diabetes and depression, what were some of the challenges that those folks were living with? Well, um, we have come to, since the early 1990s, late 80s, 1990s, we've come to understand a great deal about um, depression and diabetes. And um, I'm mindful that our podcast audience is a mix of um, both health professionals and people in the community. Um, So I might want to back up a bit here and um, share some some kind of uh, background um, about uh, both diabetes and depression, if that's okay with you. Great. So just to give us ourselves some context, um, so we know that um, diabetes is uh, in high abundance, uh, not only in the U.S., but in the world. Um, In the U.S., it affects more than 34.1 million people, uh, with another 87 million people at risk for type 2 diabetes. Um, And uh, and the the vast majority of people with diabetes um, have type 2 diabetes, and that's a combination of of, um, changes in metabolism um, as well as insulin insufficiency. Uh, Type 1 diabetes, on the other hand, is an autoimmune disorder for reasons that we still don't completely understand. The immune system uh, turns on and targets the insulin-producing cells in the pancreas called the uh, beta cells. They're located in a structure called the islets of Langerhans, 
which sounds like a Swedish vacation spot, but actually is a, is a microstructure that has very small accommodations. Um, and uh, for reasons, again, is that we don't completely understand the autoimmune system um, attacks those cells so that people are not able to produce insulin inside their bodies any longer when they have type 1 diabetes. Um, type 1 diabetes tends to onset in childhood or early adulthood. And for some folks, um, they, it, that will onset in their 30s or 40s. Uh, type 2 diabetes, we have typically thought of as an older adult uh, condition, medical condition. And while that is true, <clears throat> we have also been learning that type 2 diabetes, because it uh, coexists with overweight and obesity in 90% of people who have it, um, can also affect uh, children and adolescents. So we're increasingly thinking about both type 1 diabetes, the autoimmune disease, and type 2 diabetes, this metabolic dysregulation, as being um, conditions over the course of the lifetime. And typically, when people are diagnosed with diabetes, they continue to carry that diagnosis um, over the course of their lives. Um, we know that um, not only is diabetes plentiful, um, but the, the prevalence significantly increases over the course of um, aging. So uh, the percentage of Americans 65 and older remains high, nearly 30%. So one in three adults age 65 or older, um, or 15.9 million seniors um, can be diagnosed or undiagnosed. And there's an average of 1.4 million new cases of diabetes every year. So this is a highly relevant condition um, for older adults. Um, it is not a failure. Um, I'm always quick to add whenever I um, meet new patients or talk with anyone um, that we've typically thought of diabetes as a failure of, of moral character. Um, that's sometimes how that's um, portrayed or that's the messages that we've, we've received. But that's not the case. <clears throat> it is a failure of being able of your body being able to produce the insulin that it needs. Um, there is a, a strong genetic component. There's also a strong environmental component to type 2 diabetes. And so um, however we get there, um, <clears throat> excuse me, we get there uh, honestly. Um, and so it's, uh, it's really important that we don't engage in that kind of self-blame um, cycle because um, it's unwarranted. Um, and that's not how diabetes works. Um, and it gets in the way of self-care. Uh, diabetes uh, also has a significant financial burden. So going as far back now as 2017, we know that diabetes costs upwards uh, in excess of $327 billion, billion with a B, um, each year. And that's both direct medical costs as well as indirect costs for lost productivity and other kinds of ways that health intersects and, and interferes with our ability to do what we'd like to do, whether that's socially or financially or um, in terms of our uh, various roles. We also know that diabetes can uh, represent a significant burden to patients and families. We hope that it doesn't, but for some folks, it most certainly does. Um, there, we ask people to do a great deal to care for their diabetes. It's, it can be a complex set of recommendations for people to follow. Uh, we know that there are multiple time and resource demands, um, and that can be time spent lining up medications, that can be money spent paying copays um, for medications, that can be quality time on, on hold with insurance companies, um, of moving paperwork back and forth for, um, for approval. 
Um, and all of that can contribute to decreased quality of life, as well as some of the, the physical impacts of diabetes, both short-term, low blood sugars or high blood sugars, hypoglycemia or hyperglycemia, as well as uh, the risk or the development of diabetes long-term complications, which includes eye disease, kidney disease, heart disease, and so forth. So there are many components. Diabetes is complex. There's multiple facets to it. And um, so I like to really kind of put that all into context um, when we're thinking about diabetes and depression, because um, for some folks may have heard me say that, you know, diabetes is hard enough. When we add depression on top of that, um, that makes it that much more difficult. Um, and so just to kind of really set the stage there. And among people living with diabetes, what percentage would you say are type 1 versus type 2? Yeah, about 5% of people with diabetes have type 1 diabetes, so it is um, much less prevalent. And about 95% of people with diabetes have type 2 diabetes, that metabolic dysregulation. Calling all mental health providers. Have you been feeling ineffective, stuck, or unsure of how to best help your client with memory loss? Well, it's not your fault. Most therapists haven't had any training in addressing memory loss or cognitive changes in therapy. But I got something for you. In my free 10-minute video where I walk you through five steps for helping your clients presenting with memory loss, you'll learn the difference between memory loss and mental health concerns for older adults and how to help. Get this free training and a bonus workbook that you can start using in your clinic today. Simply go to www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity to learn more. That's www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity, C-L-A-R-I-T-Y. I think it would be so helpful to hear a bit of your perspective on, you mentioned just a minute ago, uh, when we start to shame ourselves or others, I, I hear a lot of other shaming around diabetes as well. It's not just self uh, criticism, but other criticism, like, well, if they had just eaten better, they had just taken, you know, there's a lot of other shaming and, and you're saying, and of course we all know this, that's not helpful. And, and that actually, it's not only not helpful, it interferes with how we take care of ourselves. And so can you share a little bit about, um, just before we move to the next step, I do think it would be helpful just to hear the, your thinking about the link between what self-criticism and other criticism does to our own ability and willingness to take care of ourselves and even make any behavior changes, integra integrate any recommendations for care. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we have uh, a language that we've developed around diabetes, and that's, you know, all of us who are connected to anyone who has diabetes. And so I affectionately refer, that, refer to that sometimes as diabetes land. So all of us connected to diabetes in one way or another. Um, and unfortunately, um, some of our old ways of thinking about diabetes um, involved um, themes of failure, um, and themes of self-blame, as you were saying, um, and, um, and 
and both of those themes contribute to what we call diabetes distress or diabetes burnout. Um, sometimes those terms are used separately. Sometimes they're used interchangeably. I'm going to use them here interchangeably. The basic idea is that when we have internalized or we have others, um, sometimes uh, Dr. Bill Polanski referred to um, caring others who um, who misstep, who, who engage in miscarried helping as the diabetes police. Um, when sometimes when we have that happen and we receive these kinds of messages, <clears throat> um, we internalize them. And when we internalize them, then, um, then we engage in, or those, those thoughts and feelings get activated when we hear them from the outside about um, uh, those themes of blame or shame. Combined with that is um, a, an extensive set of recommendations that we give people. Um, sometimes I um, fondly refer to those as the shoulds of diabetes. Um, the recommendations that come from the American Diabetes Association, for example, and the medical standards of care that are published every January um, that guide the medical treatment of diabetes for all healthcare providers. Um, are all based on very rigorous evidence. Um, so these come from a good place. They come from, from strong evidence. Um, but the way that we translate those frequently turns into should statements. Um, now some should statements are good should statements, right? We learn those values uh, in our families or um, through our faith traditions. Um, but, but when it comes to medical self-care, right, and, and diabetes self-care, um, shoulds can convert choices into obligations. And when we've made that transition in our, in our mind's eye, um, we don't tend to want to do things that we're obligated to do. And that, that will um, raise the specter of what's called in motivational interviewing the writing reflex, that tendency for us to say no and to push back when we're feeling uh, pushed outside of our comfort zone. And so that complicates the process of self-care. If I'm feeling pushed, if I'm feeling deprived, if I'm feeling that I can never have the foods I love again, um, or that um, the things that I've done to take care of myself are suddenly having the opposite effect, um, then I'm going to resist because that's a natural human impulse. And that's really how the brain is wired. Um, so it it's, uh, becomes a complicated landscape. So, so how we understand our relationship to diabetes is really important. And um, the more we can steer away from should statements, the more we can engage in making choices, informed choices, and hopefully healthy choices, um, and the more that we can steer away from this term control that we love to use in diabetes land, um, which is a bit of a misnomer because we can't think our way to a good blood sugar, right? We can guide blood sugars, we can influence them, we can manage them, but we can't, we can't just think and concentrate very hard and say, I want a blood sugar of 112 right now. Literally, there's no wiring for that uh, from the brain to, to uh, the, comp the complexities of the metabolic system of our whole body. So, um, so instead, we need to really be thinking about our, our appropriate stance um, and role, which is to manage and to influence um, our body and how it's functioning. And when we do that, we open up more possibilities, both in terms of our thinking and then in terms of our self-care. So that's a, it's a rich topic, and I could certainly talk a lot more about that, but, um, but it's, I'm so glad that you asked the question. 
And I'm sure one that does intersect with depression because of uh, there's a stigma now if, if there are diabetes police or we're not doing it right, or we haven't, you know, or we're experiencing self-shame or self-criticism and other shame and other criticism and policing and shooting, you know, it's um, I'm sure all of that has an influence on depression as well. Absolutely. It can help to reinforce depression. It can help to uh, inform the core beliefs that are the engine of depression underneath. If we think from a cognitive behavioral therapy perspective, absolutely. Yep. Mm -hmm. I see that a lot with um, caregivers. So I'm so glad you're bringing this up. The, The family member who's really concerned about their loved one and is acting from a place of uh, maybe even a sense of feeling out of control and and wanting to have some order in the chaos of a medical system and a medical um, a life living with a medical condition. And so sometimes there's some overbearing or missteps, mm-hmm. like you said, um, that I think is so helpful to just, as you did, br- bring to the table. It's a It's a common thing and we can be mindful and shift it. Right. And one of the antidotes to that. Um, so, you know, the the diabetes police role is really unfair to both parties, right? So it's, um, it provides miscarried helping to the person with diabetes. Um, it also can be very stressful for the loving, caring person who wants the best for the person with diabetes and who maybe a spouse or maybe an adult child who's very invested in the outcome of the person with diabetes, right? They're, they have a life together um, and they are connected to each other. Um, and so the, the antidote to the diabetes police dance, if you will, kind of how people interact around this is to empower the person with diabetes, right? So one of the best things that those of us without diabetes can do for people with diabetes is to ask questions, what can I do to be helpful to you? We need to first to ask, and then we need to, the companion to that is to listen, right? And to really listen to the answer. It's really important that we ask that question because that helps to cue the person with diabetes to give it some thought. What, what would constitute uh, truly helpful um, assistance? That might be tangible, that might be intangible, that might be a listening ear, that might be, hey, let's proceed, all things normal, I got this. Um, and it's also important for us to know kind of where our lane is um, if we're a support person. Um, that can be tricky, right? This is this sounds simple, um, but as with all things, um, it's easier said than done. And it's it can be an ongoing conversation. It may not be a conversation that you have every week, but it's one that you can you can continue to check in with the person with diabetes because things change, medications change, regimens change, um, health condition changes, and those needs will change over time. If you're an adult child working with an a older adult parent, right? So empowering your parents of what do you need um, and how can I be truly helpful to you? Um, That might be information gathering, that might be attending a doctor's visit or not. Um, It might be tangible support, it might be more emotional support. Um, But really thinking about um, and having an open conversation about what constitutes help in the eye of the beholder there um, really matters. And then that way help is a lot like art. <laughs> it's all in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> Do, uh, Dr. DeGroote, I, I just have to highlight the quote, ask, and the companion to asking is to listen. Yeah, 
that I just, that's so beautiful. A lesson that we can all take to heart. Absolutely. Right. We can practice it every day. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Do you think this is a good time to move to depression? Sure. Yeah. Let me tell you a little bit about depression. So for um, the healthcare providers who are listening to our podcast, they'll be familiar with these criteria, but I like to share these um, for people who may not be familiar with what our formal definitions of depression are. Um, Because um, again, as with diabetes, we have lots of popular ideas about depression. Um, And so just to kind of ground ourselves in our conversation here. So we think about depression, and and here I'm referring to major depression, or sometimes referred to as clinical depression, um, as a period. It's it's an episode. It's a period of time um, lasting at least two weeks or longer, in which people feel um, depressed or down most of the day, nearly every day, and or a lack of pleasure in things that they would ordinarily enjoy. So for some people, they may not necessarily get the the feeling of being sad or down or having the blues, um, but the colors run out of life um, and they may have a distinct lack of pleasure uh, or enjoyment in things that they would ordinarily enjoy. And so either of those counts as core criteria. And then in combination with one or both of those core criteria, people may have changes to their sleep pattern. They may be getting too little sleep. They may be sleeping much more than they normally would. They may not be feeling rested from the additional sleep that they're getting. They may have changes in appetite or weight, maybe a lack of appetite or maybe an insatiable appetite that's uncharacteristic of their normal pattern. People may feel um, very lethargic, um, high levels of fatigue. They may have decreased ability to concentrate or um, to attend to everyday tasks, paying bills, following TV programs, things like that, that are um, beyond what their normal level of concentration is. Um, For some people, they may end up feeling like they're moving through molasses, moving much more slowly, or feeling agitated and keyed up and pacing, um, just not being able to sit still comfortably. Um, For some people, they will uh, experience feelings of worthlessness or feeling much guiltier about things than they might otherwise feel if they weren't feeling depressed. And then last but not least, some people, fortunately a small proportion of people, um, may have thoughts of death. They may have uh, thoughts that they may be better off dead, uh, or they may be thinking about um, taking steps um, to end their life. And typically that has a lot to do with emotional pain, um, that um, this is not just um, contemplating mortality, but um, it's really a way to try to um, end um, a long-standing emotional pain. So we think about those those symptoms. Or at least five of those constitute major depressive disorder. Um, you can certainly have fewer than five, and if it affects impairment, that counts too uh, as clinical depression. Um, and very important to be aware of those symptoms because they matter. Um, again, diabetes is hard enough. We add depression on top of that, and makes it that much more difficult. So one of the things we know is that um, depression is prevalent in people with diabetes. Um, Depression is two times more likely in people with diabetes than we've observed in the general population. Um, Diabetes is not the only chronic medical condition in which people may have elevated rates of depression. There are others as well, Um, but two times more likely is still a great deal. And so we care a great deal about that. 
Um, and one in four people with diabetes will have depression in their lifetime. Um, we can think about this as different levels. So people with depressive symptoms, that's about one in five. People with a depressive disorder where that really causes impairment in work or social functioning is about one in eight people. Um, and so that really matters. We also know that um, rates, interestingly, rates of depression do not significantly differ um, by diabetes type. So people with type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes seem to have similar rates of elevated depressive symptoms, um, anywhere from 21 to 27 percent. We know that women are 60% more likely to experience depression when they have diabetes than their male counterparts, um, which is consistent with what we know in the general population that unfortunately as women, we're, we're uh, more likely to experience depression um, than men. Um, and we also know that um, how we assess depression makes a difference. So for healthcare providers listening to this, this podcast, we know that um, when we get more specific through uh, diagnostic interviewing, um, we can be more specific about which symptoms go with a medical condition and which ones can be attributed to depression as opposed to screening questionnaires. But that's not to say that screening questionnaires aren't helpful because they are, and I'll talk more about that in a bit. Um, other, other factors just to be aware of in terms of prevalence, um, in addition to uh, differential rates by gender, so women having 60% increased risk of depression with diabetes, um, we have observed over time that there are comparable rates of depression across ethnic groups. And that's really interesting because we know that diabetes is not equally distributed across communities. Um, so we know that um, socioeconomic status, so poverty, um, uh, lack of access to resources, lack of healthy environments, um, communities of color um, are all at greater risk for particularly for type 2 diabetes than, um, than more affluent uh, or predominantly white um, environments. Um, but the rates of depression seem to be comparable. So that suggests that we've got we've got a, a biological component there that's that's evening out the playing field in a way that um, still merits more investigation. Um, we also know that uh, in the last two years, we're now at the point of the two-year anniversary of the uh, pandemic in the U.S., um, that COVID-19 has not helped <laughs> with our rates of um, depression prevalence um, for people with diabetes or people without diabetes. So work that uh, me and my team have done over the last uh, 18 months, uh, the Indiana University National COVID-19 study, we um, observed increased rates of depressive symptoms in both people with and without diabetes. So COVID-19 um, has affected all of us in terms of mood. We've also seen elevated and consistent rates of diabetes distress in people um, with type 1 diabetes as well as people with type 2 diabetes. Um, and those rates of distress are at a um, moderate level, which is concerning. It has clinical implications for how people are caring for themselves. So, with stressors, um, and we certainly have, have had plenty of stressors in our environment over the last two years, um, that just exacerbates these tendencies even more. Another interesting uh, piece about the relationship of diabetes and depression is, uh, is the directionality of diabetes and, direct and depression. 
And that is that we used to assume that diabetes was hard. And, um, and so that, that process of caring for oneself 24-7, 365 without getting a vacation um, would naturally um, prime people for uh, developing depression. And we do know that having um, diabetes first does increase the risk of developing depression later on, um, anywhere from 38% to 60% of increasing the risk of having first diabetes and then depression. But we've also learned that people who have a lifetime history of depression have an increased risk of developing diabetes, type 2 diabetes, later on. And that's after controlling for other common factors, obesity, gender, poverty, and other factors. So there's something very interesting about the physiology of diabetes and depression that go, seems to go hand in hand with one another. That makes mood history very relevant um, for people, uh, for patients with diabetes, um, to talk with our healthcare providers, and I'll say more about that at the end of our interview here. Um, but if you have a history of depression, that's real, and you're newly diagnosed with diabetes, that's really important for your provider to know. Um, it's good information that um, can be monitored over time. Um, so that both conditions can be managed well and that you as a patient or you as a family can get the support that you need to manage both of those conditions. So um, those, are, those are pieces. I would also add that we've been learning a lot about how um, depression behaves once it onsets for people with diabetes. So one of the questions has been, well, is it like everyone else in the general population or is there, um, are there special considerations for people with diabetes? Um, and uh, early on, we knew that uh, when we looked at cross-sectional surveys, so we would ask people about their symptoms at one time point, and then maybe 6, 12, or 18 months later, we'd ask those same people about their symptoms again, that about 80% of people, anywhere between 77 and 80% of people, reported consistent reports of depressive symptoms. Um, and so that gave us a clue that depression, once it developed, maybe it doesn't resolve easily for people with diabetes. Um, some of the work that I've um, had the privilege to do has looked at uh, longitudinal um, surveys of people who are presenting for depression treatment. Um, and this has been conducted in two different studies now called Program Active 1 and Program Active 2, creatively enough. Um, and these were all adults with type 2 diabetes whose uh, average duration of diabetes was about 10 years. The two samples were very similar to each other, but, but separate and collected at separate times. And what we found in these samples, when we asked people about their lifetime history of depression, so this was retrospective, we asked them to think back about um, their history of depression, and we asked them to, to think about the onset and offset of depressive episodes um, as it related to other life events. What we found was that the average exposure to um, depression was not um, 8 to 12 weeks, as we have seen in the general population for an episode of depression, but that in fact depression lasted anywhere from 23 to 27 months. So this is an order of magnitude longer than we see in the general population. And that mean lifetime exposure to all, all forms of depression was nearly five years. 
So it suggests that when depression and diabetes go hand in hand, they tend to reinforce each other um, and that depression will not necessarily spontaneously remit or just go away on its own, uh, but that in fact um, it has a lasting effect um, that requires more intervention than we might otherwise need if we didn't have diabetes uh, as part of the mix. So we care about that a great deal, and um, I think that's all the more reason um, that this is an important topic, and I'm so glad we're talking about it. Um, and then last but not least, I'll just add one other piece here, which is that um, we care not only about depression because depression is hard, but also it has impacts on diabetes. So we know that when depression and diabetes go hand in hand, it's harder to manage blood sugar levels. Um, that's both behavioral and also appears to be physiologic. We know that depression and diabetes increases the risk of both short-term and long-term diabetes complications, and that's work that uh, we observed back in the early 2000s and then has been repeated um, in some excellent work by Ari Nguyen and colleagues um, just in the last couple of years. We know that it's harder to manage diabetes when you're depressed. So the, all of the things that you're asked to do get that much more difficult. And so adherence to self-care uh, gets decreased and medical costs go up. And that it would be great if those were medical costs associated with treatment of depression, um, but that tends not to be the case. Um, and so that just, it costs more than when we have both conditions as well. And then finally, if that weren't enough, um, we know that people don't function as well. So there's increased levels of functional disability for people with depression and diabetes together and uh, premature mortality from all causes. So this just gives us all the more reason that we really care about diabetes, we care about depression, and we care a lot about when those two are happening uh, for a given patient or within a, within a family. Well, that's such a helpful overview. I'm curious, how, what are the distinctions between, you, you describe depression, clinical major depressive disorder, and you've also kind of mentioned in there, uh, diabetes distress and diabetes burnout. Can you share for us a, a bit about how you differentiate each of those? Yeah, that's a great question. So we used to kind of mix them all up. Um, and we've, over the past 20 years, we've come to understand that they really are distinct phenomena, um, but, they, but they can coexist with one another, um, which makes it a little tricky. Um, so depression is a, is a function of mood, and it has impacts for diabetes. Diabetes distress is a function of living with diabetes. So rates of diabetes distress are actually much higher than even rates of depression. So anywhere to 42 to 45% of people will experience diabetes distress at some point in their journey with their diabetes. And so that's almost half. Um, that's very high. Diabetes distress is associated with the emotional burden of managing diabetes, and it's specific to the experience of living with diabetes. It can involve um, regimen burden, so feeling just burdened by the self-care uh, expectations and recommendations. It can involve interpersonal relationships. It can involve feelings of powerlessness, and it can involve relationships with healthcare providers. So all of that is very um, consistent with diabetes. The underlying substrate that we're beginning to understand about diabetes distress is that it's, it's about emotional regulation 
in the context of the stress of diabetes. Um, so very specific and has a closer relationship to A1C than depression, um, which is not to say that the relationship to depression isn't important because it is, um, but because diabetes distress is about diabetes, it has a closer relationship to A1C. So when diabetes distress goes up, A1C also tends to go up, which is why we, one of the reasons that we care a great deal about that too. And burnout? So we used to think about those as interchangeable, um, and many people still use those terms interchangeably. Sometimes I do too. Um, uh, but we're, we're moving in a direction in the literature of understanding that we can have kind of the difference between emotions and behaviors. Um, so diabetes distress is the emotional experience of diabetes. Diabetes burnout may be the behavioral manifestation of that. So the disengagement of, of um, managing diabetes self-care. So maybe missing medication doses, maybe um, not making the food choices that you would otherwise make, um, maybe missing physician appointments when um, out of shame or fear or um, uh, a feeling um, disengaged from diabetes. So mm -hmm. I, I think about the distinction between those two is one is emotional and one is more behavioral. You know, there are so many reasons to care about this. I, I know um, you mentioned uh, just the, the long-term impact, uh, the long-term relationship between diabetes and depression. So, mm -hmm. you know, the more than a year and of living with depression, if you have diabetes is, is comp is the mean, is that what you said? And uh -huh. um, 23 to 27 months or something. And yeah, and then the, um, and I just think about the level of suffering, you know, the prolonged level of suffering and um, right. what that does to a person and their sense of worth and a sense of purpose and meaning and what that does to family and community. And um, I just, I think there are so many physical, physiological, interpersonal, um, and just in terms of the a peaceful human experience just to alleviate the suffering. I had no idea, you know, I work a lot with people who are medically vulnerable and many people who live with diabetes. And I had no, this is the first time and uh, that I'm learning about the long um, life of diabetes and depression together. And that's um, another reason to care about this. It's just that there's Absolutely. long, long suffering and, and I'm, I know we're going to be shifting in a minute to what we can do about it. And mm -hmm. so I'm just, uh, I'm just looking forward to, to learning more about how to be really helpful to help alleviate some of this suffering. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and one of the things that happens experientially for, for some people is that, you know, it, it's not like flipping a switch, the experience of depression, right? So for some, for some people, they'll describe, their journey with depression um, in the context of their diabetes as they're just working harder and harder and harder and and but not having the same levels of accomplishments um, over time, whether that's personal or family or or work role or social roles. Um, and and so it's kind of a grinding down sort of um, experience where it just gets harder and harder and harder. Um, which makes it tricky to, to recognize because it's not like the flip of a switch. Um, 
And, um, and sometimes the attribution is, well, it is my job or, oh, it is this or, oh, it is that or, oh, it's a relationship phenomenon. Or, um, and so it can be harder to see that hmm, something's happening inside of me that's making this more difficult. Just not to blame people for depression because it's not about that. Um, but it, um, it can be make it a little more difficult to recognize. But early detection is really the key. So if we can um, prevent the brain from long-term exposure of depression, you know, we can reduce the risk of future depressive episodes. Um, and that's another piece. Uh, what we found in both of our studies is that people who had one depressive episode, like the general population, uh, people with diabetes who had one depressive episode had an increased risk of developing a second episode. Uh, people who had two episodes had an increased risk of developing a third. Um, and it appears that those episodes get longer each time they happen. Um, so all the more reason we want to reduce the exposure to the brain of depression um, and nip it in the bud as soon as we can um, so that people don't have that long-term process of suffering. Uh, yeah, you don't have to feel that way. <laughs> yeah, and the treatments are effective. They are. Yes, that's the great news about depression and diabetes. So uh, when I got into this field very early on, I wanted to, uh, you know, I, I wanted to learn about it and kind of what is this like, but then also what we do about it. Um, and so um, the really good news, here's a spoiler alert, <laughs> is that we have tools for this <laughs> and people don't have to suffer. So. <laughs> And to your point too, about early detection, just to put a plug in uh, around the older adults is um, older adults are commonly not detected early when they're experiencing depression. And that's because there is a, a myth or a misbelief that um, it's normal to be depressed as we age. And that is not true. And so right. um, the earlier we can detect depression in the context of diabetes. And since um, you shared with us earlier, the prevalence of diabetes among older adults, it's, it's also important to remember early detection is key for older adults as well. And, Absolutely. and, um, and depression is not normal with aging and treatments are highly, highly effective. Exactly. Right. And, you know, and, and in the modern era, we've, I think we're, we're on our way to challenging those old beliefs about aging must mean disability and, and uh, depression and disease. Um, and in fact, we now know that successful aging is, you know, is not only possible, um, but uh, is is much preferred <laughs> and more and more probable and more probable and more accessible than ever. Um, but what that means is that um, it means addressing um, changes when they occur. And the earlier we can detect those changes and the earlier we can address them, that means that uh, we're going to increase the likelihood of successful aging. That's a conversation I have with many of my patients is what, you know, to kind of offer the question of, you know, what does successful aging mean for you? So anyone who's listening to this, I offer you that same question and to be thinking about your role models for successful aging. Um, what does that look like? What does that feel like? And how, what are the, the sources of fulfillment and purpose and relevance um, that um, your role models have and that you would like to have for yourself, whether you're in midlife, whether you're in your 20s or 30s, or um, you're closer to uh, the other end of the spectrum of, of age. So yeah, really wonderful point. Okay, well, let's, let's fill them in. Let's talk about treatment. 
Okay, yes. So first step um, before we even get to treatment is screening. So, um, and that is both self-screening if you're a person with diabetes and also for healthcare professionals uh, for formal screening, whether that is um, a conversation with your patient um, or if that's using screening tools. So one of the things we know is that as you, to your point, Regina, that depression is consistently underdiagnosed and underreported, not only in older adults, but in the population more generally. We also know that, that as healthcare providers, if we ask questions and we listen to the answers, um, our patients will share <laughs> that will, it will break that old script of the medical script of the interactions we tend to have uh, when we're talking with our healthcare providers. Um, we also need to recognize as healthcare providers that sharing mood information can make people feel vulnerable and not everyone is comfortable sharing that information, particularly in communities where there has been a history of violation or oppression or not being taken seriously or being over-pathologized. So many um, ethnic communities um, are hesitant to talk about um, some of these more vulnerable experiences, and which means that we need to take the extra efforts to help people feel safe, safe in their care, safe in their interpersonal relationship with us as healthcare providers, and to um, be sensitive with how we have those conversations, um, because um, it's all about safety first um, and in everything that we do. We also know that um, as healthcare providers, sometimes we worry about asking screening questions. Um, even though we know better, we may still have that old feeling of, well, if I ask about it, will I be inducing it? Will I be inducing depression? Um, and the answer, good news, the answer is no. <laughs> and then the next question is, well, will my patient reject me or reject the idea of treatment? Um, and what we know from the literature is that patient attitudes are actually quite positive um, if people get a treatment that's appropriate for what they need and they see results. Um, so uh, we can have some good confidence that we can have these conversations with our patients um, and that that gets us on the right road to not only reducing suffering for our patients, but also making our work as healthcare providers easier um, because we're not just working against whatever the conditions um, are associated with a person's state of diabetes, but we're also having to kind of work against depression and how that's not supporting that person with diabetes. So ways we can screen. We can ask simple questions. How's your mood been in the past two weeks? Um, have you felt depressed or down most of the day, nearly every day in the past two weeks? Have you had a loss of interest in things that you would otherwise enjoy? Simple questions. They don't need to take a lot of time. Um, but they can get you really good information. Are we on the map of depression or is this something that's not even relevant to your patient? Asking really opens up that door. It also makes it a legitimate topic for your patients so that it gives them permission and encourages them to share that information with you at subsequent visits if that becomes relevant. We have a variety of screening questionnaires that can be built into the check-in process. Um, so my patients will complete a Beck depression inventory um, when they check in for their appointment while they're waiting for me to, to come see them. Um, many uh, electronic health records have um, the PHQ-9, um, the patient health questionnaire, which is a depression screener that is uh, built into the healthcare system already. Um, great information if that's already collected. 
the geriatric depression scale um, is particularly um, focused for uh, older adults and helps to, and the questions are framed in such a way so that you're not capturing um, artifacts of aging, um, physical changes associated with aging and misattributing those to mood. Um, so we just want the right tool uh, for the right population. Um, what's really important about using screening questionnaires is that we look at the answers um, and that we do that in real time. So if we're asking people about de uh, depressive symptoms, we're asking them about suicidal ideation and intent or plan, um, that we've reviewed those items so that we can take the necessary steps to ask follow-up questions um, should those be relevant um, for your patient at that time. Uh, and then, of course, documenting um, how we've addressed um, those concerns um, if they have um, been evident uh, either in our interview or in our questionnaire. So first, is, first step is screening. Second step is treatment. So the really good news about depression is that we have multiple tools now that we can use to treat depression. Um, we have a, a wide variety of antidepressant medications. Um, uh, in that are available for the general population, and a subset of those have been tested um, for their effectiveness for people with diabetes and depression comorbidly. Um, we also know that psychotherapy counseling uh, is an effective tool, and I'll talk a little bit about that. And then um, when we combine counseling and exercise, it turns out that that's highly effective too uh, for people with diabetes and depression. Um, so, in terms of uh, medication treatments for depression, uh, their uh, studies have tested both the uh, tricyclic antidepressant medications and the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, and then their cousins, the SNRIs. Um, and have found that both of those um, families of antidepressant medications are effective in treating depression in people, in samples of people with diabetes. Um, so good news that the, the same uh, treatment recommendations that we would use for someone without diabetes can also be used with diabetes. Um, with diabetes and advanced complications comes uh, pain presentations, neuropathic pain, um, which is a, a long-term complication of diabetes. Um, and so some medications may be used for more than one purpose. Uh, so Regina, you and I were talking before the interview about tricyclic antidepressants. Um, there's been testing for people with diabetes of nortriptyline at the 25 to 50 milligram uh, per day uh, level that has been found to be effective in treating depression. Um, it also can be effective for use in treating neuropathic pain. So it can be kind of a two for one. It's generic so that it's low cost and that makes it accessible for many people. But there also are some considerations you were mentioning about um, for older adults. And if you'd like to share those, that would be great for people to know. Yeah, so uh, there has been also research that their uh, TCAs are contraindicated in older adults. Um, due to postural hypotension, which can contribute to falls and fractures, um, cardiac conduction abnormalities, and anticholinergic effects. So the, the moral of this story, I also have had um, older adults who I do work with who are prescribed TCAs for neuropathic pain or other types of pain um, related to spinal cord injuries. Uh, and, and so I would say the moral of the story is to really consult with your physician about what medication is, is right for you. Um, given your 
the interactions with other medications, as well as any uh, considerations with age or cognitive function. Absolutely. Yes, I completely agree. Right. Well, the the really good news um, is that we have many different options for treating depression now in ways that we didn't have even 30 years ago. Um, And so, um, and and we also know that um, because the brain is highly specialized, um, you know, one size does not fit all. Um, and even the first medication may not be the right medication for our patients. Um, and so setting the stage for patients so that they have an understanding that this is a process of figuring out the right fit um, and also then tailoring those, those medications for the whole medical picture um, is uh, critical, a very important part of of um, effective treatment. Absolutely, yeah. Um, moving on then from medications to psychotherapy. So we have a, a large body of literature in the general population that uh, counseling or one-on-one or, or even group counseling can be effective in treating depression. And we found this to be also true for people with diabetes. So cognitive behavioral therapy is our go-to these days. Um, and for those who may not be familiar with that, with that term, that is understanding the thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that interact with one another to, um, that we use and habits of thinking that we use all day long. Um, when we are depressed, some of those habits of thinking are shaped in particular ways and that help to... Um, keep us in that rut of depression. I Sometimes I think about it like a path through the woods. And the longer we walk that same path, the deeper uh, the, the rut is in, in, in along that trail. Um, and so in cognitive behavioral therapy, um, people get to, get to understand how their thoughts and feelings and behaviors interact with one another, how they're related and impacted by your physical body, and as well as the environment. And, uh, and then looking for patterns that don't serve us very well, that may not be realistic appraisals of our um, current situation as it is today. So we know that cognitive behavioral therapy is effective in treating depression. Um, multiple studies have evaluated that in type 2 uh, diabetes for adults. We also know that problem-solving therapy is a, a variation of, of cognitive behavioral therapy. It's a Uh, directed at let's identify some problems and let's think of strategies to resolve those. Um, And we know that um, there are many ways to obtain counseling. So that can be individual psychotherapy. We used to think about that as an in-person only model, but now we know that virtual care is abundant and can be very effective um, for, for people and can actually overcome some of the access issues that people used to have. Uh, We know that uh, collaborative care or multidisciplinary team care can be highly effective in identifying people who are struggling with depression and diabetes and um, using a a multidisciplinary team approach with case managers, uh, which are typically nurses, the role of behavioral health and psychiatry um, can take a team approach to supporting people um, and treating depression um, effectively and efficiently. And then there are web-based approaches um, that predated uh, our virtual uh, health and telehealth initiatives um, and that um, are also effective. Beating the Blues is one of those, um, as well as um, other approaches that have been developed in other parts of the world. So we know that when we look at these approaches, that they have not only an, 
important effect on depression, but they also have the potential to improve A1C. So I just want to highlight here, doing kind of a shameless self-promotion for uh, my own uh, intervention, a set of interventions actually, called Program Active. Um, Active is an acronym um, that stands for Adults Coming Together to Increase Vital Exercise, A-C-T-I-V-E. Um, we've conducted two studies now with the program active um, approach, which has two parts. One is a counseling approach um, that uses 10 sessions of cognitive behavioral therapy. And the other is a community-based exercise approach. And what we found when we tested these head-to-head, -head, CBT alone versus exercise versus combination of the two delivered concurrently over a 12-week period versus people who received um, only assessment. Um, usual care. We found that people who received any of those active interventions, counseling, exercise alone, or the combination, had significant improvements in depression. So we were delighted to see that there's different, different ways you can get to the same place, which is feeling better. Um, not only did that improve depression, but it also improved other outcomes as well. So quality of life, self-efficacy, um, as well as some improvements in diabetes distress, even though that was not the primary target. We've also learned um, that uh, when we combine counseling and the exercise or the exercise alone, we can also improve A1C. And not only did we observe that to be an improvement after the end of intervention, but we saw sustained effects of that six and 12 months later, uh, which is um, was actually kind of surprising for us, actually, because we weren't sure that we were going to have that much of a lasting effect. So it's really good news because it means that um, in terms of exercise, if people engage in about 150 minutes of aerobic or strengthening exercise per week, they do that safely. They do that in conjunction with what their body will let them do um, and do it with um, a, a trainer or someone who can help guide what safe exercise looks like for your body at any given time, that that um, not only helps with diabetes self-management, um, but also has an impact on mood. It affects the whole brain um, and gives us some real benefits. And the best part is that it's cost-effective. And so work that we've done with colleagues at the University of Michigan um, helped us to be able to evaluate whether this was really um, a cost-saving or cost-effective approach. And um, it turned out that it, it is. Um, so it has good effects, it can last, and, um, and it, uh, it's worth it from a cost perspective. And to your point about um, being good for the whole brain. So not only is it reducing depressive symptoms and depression altogether, it um, actually, those are the recommendations also of the Global Council on Brain Health for um, pre preventing or reducing risk for dementia disorders. Exactly. Right. So that's, you know, one of the things that we've been learning is um, how important physical activity is um, not only for good blood circulation, but for brain activity more generally and helps us to get to that goal of successful aging. That's right. Um, at all points in the, in the lifespan. Absolutely. Before we move um, forward to one of the things I wanted to, to go back to the screening um, questionnaires or screening tools that you mentioned, um, PHQ-9, just for folks listening, has also been normed with older adults and the geriatric depression scale which I really like if my um, patient has a dementia disorder or a cognitive impairment that might be interfering with their ability to answer a Likert model. Mm -hmm. And so I'm thinking 
of, in, in particular, in my mind of um, a patient I've worked with post-stroke from diabetes. And when I would work with him, we would use the GDS, the geriatric depression scale, because it would, it's a binary tool. So it's yes or no, rather than a Likert model. And it was um, really helpful for folks with cognitive disorders when, when a PHQ-9 would be overwhelming or challenging to navigate. Right. Yes. I think that's a really nice point. You know, for those of us who uh, who are research oriented or who have just spent a lot of time in school, <laughs> um, we we tend to kind of take it for granted that using forms like questionnaires is, is something familiar. And for some of us, it is. But for many people, it's not. And it can be a little overwhelming. And if, um, if people are having mild cognitive impairments for any reason, um, it can be even more overwhelming. So yeah, it's a lovely point. Yeah. Any statistically significant difference between exercise versus counseling? Or are they about the same? In terms of depression outcomes, they were comparable. Um, so, uh, which we were really pleased to see, uh, because not, you know, different people want different kinds of tools. Um, so in our study, we randomly assigned people to different con conditions. Um, but sometimes, you know, as, as happens with, uh, research that's structured in that way, some somewhat artificial, um, because we need to rigorously test our tools, um, and that's the point of the research. But um, but in real life, people choose the tools that they want to pursue, right? Um, and so uh, I was pleased to see that when people were randomly assigned to these arms that uh, for depression outcomes, that counseling was just as good as the exercise and just as good as the combination. So people who prefer exercise and that feels like a better fit for them, perhaps they have access to programs like Silver Sneakers or other kinds of, of programs, um, that may be the, the, the natural route um, to go, and that will be very helpful. Um, for other folks, it's about relationships and it's about conversation and, and it's about um, sharing and um, setting goals and then working toward those goals. And then, so the counseling route um, can be helpful for them. And for some people, the kind of getting the, that additional combination is, is highly useful. Um, when it came to A1C, we saw more of an effect for people who received either the combination or the exercise alone. And that made a lot of sense to us because uh, A1C is a measure of average glucose over the life of a red blood cell, two to three months. It's a physiologic measure. It's a measure of how the body is doing. And we would expect that exercise would have a more direct effect on A1C than talk therapy. Uh, so, um, so the exercise piece does help to contribute to A1C. Um, and that's great news too. So we're just delighted. The the story here started in a pretty dark place, deep in that forest, and that the trees are comprised of diabetes and physiological changes and depression and family concern and distress, burnout, right? And what you know, the arc of our of our meeting today has has led us to a path forward that there we can clear the forest. Uh, we can help people live a a more fulfilling, um, vibrant, free of suffering or less suffering life with some pretty applicable treatments, 10 sessions of CBT, or was it eight sessions of it is 10, 10, 10 and yeah. exercise. And so, you know, this is really a story of hope and opportunity. 
It is. I, I love how you framed that, Regina. And I, I see it that way too. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I find this work to be so gratifying is that we have good news um, about depression and diabetes. We also have good news about um, di- diabetes prevention too. Um, so um, we can prevent diabetes wh- where we can. And if we can't, that we, that we, uh, we don't have to um, have prolonged periods of suffering. Um, there are some takeaways that I'd love to share with your audience here about um, uh, about diabetes and depression. Um, and I hope that there's little nuggets in here for whoever, whatever your background is, that there's something that you've been able to get out of our conversation today. Um, for providers, some of the implications of this body of literature that has grown over uh, the past really 50 years, but certainly um, more intensively in the past 25 to 30 years. Um, it's important to know that rates of depression do exceed, um, for people with diabetes, exceed those that we see in the general population. Um, And that's true for adults with type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Also important to keep in mind that depression is recurrent. So if you have one depressive episode, there is um, an increased risk of developing subsequent depressive episodes. And depression appears to be persistent. Um, and um, and that means greater depression exposure um, increases the risk of uh, greater glycemic uh, dysregulation. So um, so we we care about that for lots of reasons that we've talked about. Uh, early detection of depression, however, creates a pathway for care that has the potential to decrease exposure to depression and its consequences. So the earlier we can detect it, the better off our patients can be because we can connect them to treatment. Um, and we have m- multiple treatment modalities available, uh, whether that's virtual care, whether that's in-person care, whether that's exercise, talk therapy, or medications, or a combination. Uh, we shouldn't be shy about a uh, about thinking about combinations if depression is particularly tenacious. And then I also want to point um, point out to folks um, about a new resource that became available just last year that's available for free uh, on the American Diabetes Association website, diabetes.org, that's called Diabetes and Emotional Health, a Practical Guide for Health Professionals Supporting Adults with Type 1 and Type 2 Diabetes. This is a wonderful resource guide that was a, that originated in Australia, actually. Uh, Drs. Jane Spade and Crystal Hendricks put together their resource guide that was specific to resources available in Australia. It was then translated, culturally translated for the United Kingdom, and then um, has more, most recently been culturally translated for here in the U.S. Uh, it has uh, screening measures in it. It has uh, information tips. Uh, tip sheets that you can you can share with your patients um, and is just good solid information not only about depression and diabetes but also diabetes distress anxiety and some other common psychological conditions so a really great resource available for free download your copy today um, because it's there for you and then for people with diabetes, um, for anyone who may be listening or a family member who may be listening um, on behalf of a loved one with diabetes, um, a couple of key takeaways. First is depression can be treated. So it does happen um, and it can be treated. So that's the really good news. 
Um, and also that we've had a lot of environmental invitations for depression and depressive symptoms um, since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, what we see now, uh, my practice is overflowing with referrals, um, as uh, it is the case for many, many mental health providers, uh, because many people have been so um, deeply affected by our, our world events. Um, just know that um, that there are many ways to get to feeling better. Um, and a great way to start is to share any changes that you are experiencing with in your mood symptoms with your providers. Um, even if your provider doesn't think to ask, which we hope they will, but even if they don't ask, um, this is important information that you can offer to them. Um, really helpful for them to know about how the big picture is for you and also for the two of you to have an empowered conversation about what your options are and what makes sense in the context of your larger health. We can all go to the internet now and in this age of information and look up uh, generic recommendations, um, but there's nothing like having a healthcare provider who knows you to help tailor that information and filter that for what's really relevant for your particular presentation and set of circumstances uh, inside your body and, and outside as well. Um, and there are many choices um, right now uh, and many roads to health. And then last but not least, I would invite people um, with diabetes to continue to share updates about your health um, and about your mood uh, with your healthcare providers over time beyond that initial conversation. Um, sometimes it can be hard to connect with care. We know that, this is structural, it's not your fault. Um, but, um, but having the repeated conversation with your healthcare provider helps them to know where you're at and helps uh, gives you a resource to brainstorm about what other options might be available. If the first option doesn't work, it's okay. Um, we have many to choose from. So just kind of keeping that conversation going, I think is a really important piece. Well, that's such a helpful tip because I, I hear from a lot of my patients, well, I don't want to even talk to my psychiatrist about this medication not working because they're going to get sick of me or they're tired of things not working for me. Or, and you're so right, Mary, to really encourage continued dialogue and to not stop the conversation because an intervention is not effective for you. Right, right. There's no shame in that. Everybody's body is different. Side effects are not universally um, acceptable for people. Some people don't have them at all. Other people may be like, no, this is not for me. Um, but sharing that information is really helpful. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is so helpful. I, I just really appreciate your uh, wisdom here, the work that you do to you know, you're, you're saying if counseling is not for you, exercise can be helpful. There are many roads to um, improving diabetes and depression simultaneously. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much. We'll link to the resources that you shared with us and in the show notes okay. that will be available for everyone. And then, um, and then folks can get, you know, register to get continuing education credits as well. All the information will be linked on the show notes page. Great. Great. Well, thank you so much, Regina, for this time together. And thanks to everyone for listening. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's all for today. Just a reminder, if you're a licensed mental health provider looking for continuing education focused on mental health and aging, simply go to mentalhealthandaging.com to learn more about how to earn your CEUs. 
calling all mental health providers. Have you been feeling ineffective, stuck, or unsure of how to best help your client with memory loss? Well, it's not your fault. Most therapists haven't had any training in addressing memory loss or cognitive changes in therapy. But I got something for you. In my free 10-minute video where I walk you through five steps for helping your clients presenting with memory loss, you'll learn the difference between memory loss and mental health concerns for older adults and how to help. Get this free training and a bonus workbook that you can start using in your clinic today. Simply go to www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity to learn more. That's www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity, C-L-A-R-I-T-Y.